DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. Have you ever been to a bog before? If not, you might be picturing something a bit gross. But despite the name, they're usually quite beautiful. Earthy, lush, open wetlands. And it's here that you find peat, that soft, spongy, crumbly brown earth made up of decomposing vegetation. These places, peat bogs, are enormous carbon sinks. They suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it away in the earth. Worldwide, peat bogs store twice the amount of carbon compared to the planet's forests. So, thumbs up for peat bogs. The problem arises when we take peat out of the ground. It's popular for farming, gardening, and in some places, heating. Every year, millions of tonnes of CO2 from peat are released into the atmosphere, speeding up global warming. Digging up peat has become big business. The global peat market is worth about 1.9 billion US dollars, and the demand is increasing, particularly in Central Europe and in China. Here in Germany, there are now efforts to keep the remaining peat in the ground and to find more sustainable alternatives. But that's driving demand to source it from other countries, as Tony Neumann uncovers in this in-depth story presented by Neil King. A yellow excavator loads a trailer of black peat here on this moor in northwestern Germany. A biologist named Erik Thieme stands nearby and watches the process. He works for the German company Grammoflor, which produces substrate and potting soil. We're standing in the middle of peat harvesting and renaturation areas in Fechte Moor. There are other peat works that also harvest here, and some of them still use the light rail. For thousands of years, this sour-smelling brownish soil has been used as fuel. It's also a great substrate for growing vegetables and flowers. But climate activists say we need to protect the bogs the peat is harvested from, because that's where a third of the world's carbon is stored. The water that peat bogs are saturated with is also where dead moss and other plant materials partially decompose. Martin Kutim, a bog expert at Tallinn University in Estonia, explains how carbon storage works in this kind of environment. Well, it creates the conditions itself. Firstly, it absorbs large amounts of carbon, so it's a large carbon sink. And at the same time, it creates the substrate for itself and its other plant species that grow there. But also, due to its very specific physiology, it absorbs and holds large quantities of water. So it can hold about 10 times more water than the biomass it has. And also, uh, due to the ion exchange, it makes the environment more acidic and very uh, antibacterial. So it heightens the composition process, so the soil is not decomposing anymore, it stays there, and so the layers of peat add all the time. It's a very slow process. On average, peat bogs grow by just one millimeter each year. They're found mainly in Canada, the Baltic states, Finland, Russia and Germany, but also Indonesia. In total, peatlands cover 3% of the world's surface, but store twice as much carbon as the world's forests. 
But when peat comes into contact with oxygen, it oxidizes into CO2, which is how it causes CO2 emissions. One third of these emissions come from Indonesia, mostly from slash and burn agriculture. Another part comes from people in Ireland, Finland, and Belarus, still burning peat to heat their homes. And then there are the millions of hectares of farm and forestry land converted from peatland, which release up to 40 tons of CO2 per hectare every year. Each year, around 40 million cubic meters of peat are extracted to produce planting soil. Between its firm, moist structure and slightly acidic composition, it's in many ways ideal for today's highly efficient, highly industrialized horticulture sector. That's according to Yuri Tilman, who manages the Estonian branch of German peat producer ASP Grünland. Most of the watermelons sold in Spain produced in Morocco. That means how the system works. We're growing the young plants in Spain. The young plants sold to Morocco. The watermelon produced in Morocco and then brought back to the Spain. From where we're spreading the Spanish watermelons across the Europe. Lots of garlic we're importing from China, for example. We're not producing sufficient amount of garlic in Europe to feed the old people. Almost 30% of the garlic we're importing from China, for example. But these garlic plants are produced on peat, which is origin from Baltic states, from Finland, from Canada, and so on. The EU generates sales of 130 billion euros a year by cultivating vegetables, fruit, and flowers. Young saplings are grown on substrate that contain about 70% peat. At this high-tech plant, not far from Bremen, a soil pot press punches 150 bales out of a box of substrate. A seed falls into each one, onto which a little sand trickles to protect it from the sun and cold. Every hour, 700 crates with over 100,000 plants are moved into a temperature-controlled room for a few days before being moved to the six-hectare greenhouse. Plants ready for sale are loaded onto trucks. A few workers monitor the automated process. The owner is a 32-year-old named Pia Luske. She took over her father's farm seven years ago and produces about 400 million seedlings for vegetables, like lettuce and cabbage, per year. Here in the vegetable industry, where we have 150 plants in a box and each one must look identical, as customers have high expectations, we simply depend on peat. Peat alternatives are only useful to a point. Luska says her company uses about 40,000 cubic meters of peat per year and acknowledges this is harmful to the climate. That's why she wants to up her use of alternative substrates to 30%, provided this meets her customers' standards. Luska gets her substrate from Gramoflor, which is run by Josef Graman, a fifth-generation bog farmer, as he calls himself, in his mid-50s. His great-grandfather, like thousands of smallholder farmers at the time, was sent to the moors to cultivate the barren peat soils, equipped merely with a spade. Graman's grandfather used to sell peat fuel on the side. After the Second World War, when the horticultural industry discovered peat makes for excellent planting soil, the Gramans rose to become substrate traders. Graman says less than 1% of Germany's peatland has been greened for harvesting. These are areas that were drained decades ago and have been degraded by intensive agriculture. 
Around 4 million cubic metres of peat are harvested each year in Germany, though that number is declining. New harvesting permits are rarely issued anymore, and existing licences are set to expire in the coming decade. Grahmann became aware of global warming many decades ago, he says, as he shows us his farm, where huge piles of various substrates are stored. That's why he began using peat alternatives some 30 years ago. We have five different wood fibre types, four different coconut variants. We have a total of eight different peat grades, two different compost kinds. And then it goes on to the perlites, pumice, sand, wet clay, clay granules, clay powder. And the person in charge who oversees the mixing says, I want such and such percentage from bunker number 20 or number 18. So a soil can consist of 20 different components, including fertilizer. Gramoflor produces 700,000 cubic meters of substrates per year, mostly for the horticulture industry. About a third of the substrates now consist of peat alternatives, says Grahmann, mostly wood and coconut fibre, as well as compost. All these materials have a smaller carbon footprint than peat. But one drawback is that they need more water, fertiliser and pesticides. They're also more expensive and are not always produced in an environmentally and socially responsible way. Coconut, for example, is harvested in India and Sri Lanka using child labour. The fibre has to be buffered with calcium nitrate and then washed with fresh water, causing water pollution. Grahmann therefore plans to wash coconut fibre himself in accordance with German environmental standards. At the same time, he doubts the fibre will be available to European substrate manufacturers for much longer. Ich könnte mir vorstellen, I could imagine that in five or ten years this raw material will be used in the countries of origin, be that to make car tyres or tabletops or whatever. At the moment it's just residual material that they don't need, but probably in ten years' time, I can imagine, it will be processed in the countries of origin and will no longer be available to us. The situation looks similar for wood. Wood chips are needed by other industries, for example to produce medium-density fibreboard and particle boards. These industries pay much better, and the paper industry also buys residual woods from the saw milling industry. The same goes for the wood pellet industry. It's grown quite strongly. Demand is likely to increase even further, now that the EU subsidises the burning of wood as biomass. Peatland conservationists suggest using peat moss as a substitute substrate, which can be cultivated on re-wetted peatlands. Grahmann says they're a good substitute, but far too expensive at the moment for commercial use. And it would take decades to produce the quantities needed. While phasing out peat will be a challenge in the vegetable sector, critics wonder why the phase-out for hobby gardening, for example, is set for 2026, and not sooner. One of these critics is Holger Buschmann, the regional chair of NABU, the German Nature and Biodiversity Conservation Union. 
Das, was ich aber am stärksten kritisiere, ist, What I criticize most strongly is that we are not in a position to make a decision at a political level, on the EU or the federal level, to stop allowing the use of peat among hobby gardeners. It is incredible that 20% of peat simply ends up in this sector, in gardens, and so on. We can't afford this anymore. And I really cannot understand why politicians are not drawing the appropriate conclusions here. Bushman does not understand why peat is also used to cultivate ornamental plants, which accounts for 30 to 40 percent of peat use. But what benefit would it really have if Germany were to phase out the extraction and use of peat, thereby reducing its CO2 emissions by 0.2 percent, if the world, or other EU states at least, don't follow suit? Parliamentary State Secretary Ophelia Nick says all EU countries would have to work together to achieve a meaningful phase-out. Bundesminister Jem Özdemir hat das schon letztes Jahr im Agrarrat vorgestellt. Germany's Agriculture Minister Cem Özdemir suggested this to the EU Agriculture Council last year, calling on the Commission to take action. Countries' reactions were mixed because some sell peat, while in others, peat use is part of the culture. The agriculture minister's efforts have not proven successful so far. Take the example of Ireland. For decades, state-owned energy company Bordnamona burnt 5 million cubic meters of peat each year to produce electricity. Now, however, Ireland's large peat deposits are almost depleted. And according to the European Court of Justice, Ireland's peat-fired power plants violate EU environmental directives. Ireland will therefore stop using peat to generate power in late 2023. The problem is that several power plants are now burning wood instead of peat. The Eden Dairy power plant in the Irish Midlands, for example, will be burning one million tons of tropical wood each year, sourced from the Amazon estuary in Brazil. Finland is another example. As recently as 15 years ago, 20 million cubic meters of peat were used to heat homes there every year. A few years ago, the government decided to phase out peat and burn Russian wood instead. However, on March 8, 2022, a few days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Finland's government stopped importing Russian wood. Finland's state-owned energy company, Neova, was ordered to once again provide 8 million cubic meters of peat per year to local heating plants. But maybe the most important example of all is the Baltic region. Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia together produce a third of the world's peat. And apart from a few climate and environmental activists, no one there wants to change that. On the contrary, says Jan Peters, who heads Wetlands International, a peatland conservation group. A large part of the peat used in Germany and in other Central European countries like the Netherlands actually comes from the Baltic states. There, peat is extracted on a large scale from largely intact peatlands which, however, are perceived as already damaged. But if we look at peatlands there, also in comparison to what we still have here in Germany, Baltic peatlands are actually very valuable and very well preserved, and they are being potentially destroyed. In Estonia, 70% of peatlands were drained during the Soviet era for agricultural purposes and forestry but also to produce fuel for combined heat and power plants. Today, Estonia is one of the five biggest peat exporters in the world. 
but the rules on harvesting this resource are much more lax there. A thick layer of snow covers the ground here in the Estonian village of Kolga Yani. Inka Lansalu and her husband cultivate potatoes, rye and wheat on a thousand hectares of farmland. Two years ago, however, a company started extracting peat from a plot of land directly adjacent to theirs. We've been finding many more of the brown moor snakes here in our fields recently. The water level in our well has dropped, and in summer it's two degrees warmer here than in the village. There's also less rain. The dark surface of the peat apparently absorbs a lot of heat. And when that's released and rises up into the atmosphere, it drives away some of the clouds above this area. From May to September, the company takes off one layer of peat after another, says Inka Lansalu's friend, Sandra Urvak. Once the peat has dried in the sun, it's pushed together and later processed into substrate in a nearby factory. But this generates considerable dust. The peat harvesting creates this micro dust that you can't really see, but the people living nearby, they actually see it under windowsills because it is actually real dust and you breathe it in. And it also, because the peat can be harvested when it's dry, and, and it's a great risk for great fires. Sandra Urvak leads the way to a snow-covered bog. There are a few small birch trees dotted about, and fresh drainage ditches on the sides. Urvak says this is an intact moor, where capercaillies breed in spring and moorland plants bloom. She's set up a citizen's initiative with like-minded people to protect this ecosystem. Our NGO has also a lawsuit against the state and the mining company on different bases because the first permit they got in 2004 and the second one in 2012, but they didn't start to do anything until 2020 or maybe the end of 2019. But our law says that if you kind of like reserve the permit, but you don't do anything for five years, then the agency that gives the permit, they can take the permit back. We have a lawsuit based on that, that Estonia has signed all sorts of agreements, the Green Deal, the Fit for 55, all sorts of policies for climate, turn back the climate change and so on. But still, the state continues to give out such permits to mine in such bogs like this one that is in natural state. Yuri Ott Salm of the Estonian Fund for Nature, ELF, says Estonia still has lots of intact peatlands, making it all the more important to renaturalize peatlands. But this is not the case in Estonia, he says. One driver for the demand growth for Estonia and also for the whole politics and Finland is that, for example, in Germany, they are trying to phase out peat mining which means that there is more pressure on our peatlands. And also we see that the number of new licenses which is applied by the peat mining companies, there is rather increasing trend. Estonia is one of the beneficiaries of the EU's Life Restoration Project, which aims to rewater some 5,300 hectares of degraded peatlands in the Baltic states, Poland and Germany. The project has been running since 2016. 
Back in northwestern Germany, a yellow Grammophlor excavator loads trailer after trailer with peat. Eric Thiemer points to a lake a ways off. In Germany, companies must renaturalize or rewet areas where peat has been harvested, the biologist says. He points out another area where another company has piled up earth mounds and let water run in. This way, you'll have a large lake. That way, the official renaturation requirements are almost met. Almost, as the rewatered area no longer emits carbon. But a real raised bog, with the accompanying vegetation and the proper flora, which is what we want, will only develop through bog peat mosses. As he points to strips of land along the road that belong to the Grammophlor company, Tima says bog mosses are especially robust. There is a slightly higher strip where peat is being extracted. There is a slightly lower strip partially covered with water and bog peat mosses, originally cultivated by Erik Tima in Grammophlor's garden laboratory, where they were protected from the elements. There's another 50 centimeters of peat under the water so that the water does not seep away in summer, providing a conducive environment for the vegetation to thrive. When we talk about renaturalizing, we're not talking about the size of a sports pitch. We're talking about millions of square meters. I can't send people around with watering cans all the time. It will tend to peat mosses again and again when it's too dry. At the end of the day, nature needs to be self-regulating. Holger Buschmann from NABU is full of praise for Graman's peatland renaturalization efforts. No other company has done it like that, only this company. And he was able to prove over the years that it actually works. He really did pioneering work there. And I find it very strange that other companies are not thinking more about it, especially against the backdrop of climate change. Buschmann and Graman are both concerned about greenhouse gas emissions from peatlands that have been severely degraded through decades of intensive agriculture. These 1.3 million hectares of space emit 20 to 30 times as much CO2 as peat cutting. Graman submitted a new application for peat cutting seven years ago. At that time, he had the exact height of the area in question measured, but erosion has been a problem. Three weeks ago, we had a new level survey carried out at the same locations. And within seven years, we've seen peat erosion of somewhere between 20 and 30 centimetres. That means three to four centimetres of peat have disappeared there every year. If Germany wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and meet the targets set out by the 2021 National Peatland Protection Strategy, it would have to rewater 150,000 hectares of degraded peatland by the end of the decade. That would cost tens of billions of euros, money that's nowhere in sight. Currently, only 2,000 hectares of peatland are restored each year in Germany. The vast remainder of degraded peatland continues emitting greenhouse gases. This must be stopped, says Nabu head Bushman, who is glad to see the state of Lower Saxony is also taking the peat industry to task. It has rewatered regions where peat has been harvested, but also areas unaffected by peat cutting to benefit the climate. 
Doesn't it make sense to continue cutting peat, but also renaturalize additional areas and develop them into more land so that they can quickly sequester carbon? In such a situation, it might actually be more advantageous to harvest peat instead of using the area for intense agricultural purposes. This is especially true, considering quickly ending German peat harvesting doesn't actually help the climate. Instead, it's driving the peat and vegetable industries out of the country. One person who's already observed this trend is Bernd Hofer, one of Germany's leading experts on the topic. The geographer from Münster advises environmental protection associations, companies and governments. He was recently in China, in a region where intensive vegetable farming on arable land is visibly degrading the countryside. You can speed through that area for an hour on the express train and all you see is plastic sheeting. Everything is under plastic, with horticulture underneath, right on the ground. And the soil, of course, will get degraded at some point. All the pesticides, nutrients, everything goes directly into the soil, into the groundwater. So it's clear the horticultural industry will need to use the substrate if you want to keep the nutrients, reduce water consumption and increase efficiency. Hofer has learned that in China, widespread vegetable cultivation on peat is just beginning making it all the more likely that China's demand for peat will grow significantly in the next few years. It has been said that China would consume 50 million cubic meters of peat by 2030. That's actually more than we produce or have available globally. 50 million cubic meters of peat that will be imported almost exclusively from Russia. If this leads to German companies producing vegetables more efficiently and cheaply in China than at home, Europe will probably begin importing peat-grown vegetables from there. In which case, Germany's peat phase-out wouldn't actually be so climate-friendly, since transporting peat and importing vegetables would ultimately mean more CO2 emissions. That in-depth report on the business of peat from Tony Neumann was presented by Neil King. If you'd like more DW Environment content, you can find us online at dw.com environment. We're also on TikTok and YouTube. You can find us there by searching for DW Planet A. And we're on Facebook and Instagram too under DW Environment. And if you're not already subscribed to Living Planet in whichever podcast app you use, go and do that now. A new episode will pop up in your podcast feed every week. And while you're there, if you've got a moment, leave us a rating and a review. We'd be so grateful. And as always, if you have questions for us at Living Planet, stories you'd like us to cover or feedback you'd like to share there, you can always email us at livingplanet at dw.com. Thank you so much for listening. Before we go today, though, I have one more thing to share with you, which is a recommendation for a new DW podcast. It's called Don't Drink the Milk, but it's not a podcast about milk. 
It's about history, culture, and unravelling the weird, wacky and wonderful backstories of everyday things. You can go and find out for yourself by listening to the first mini episode that's out now on all podcast platforms. An episode that also happens to feature risque parlour games from the Victorian era, Russian scandals, and a little bit of milk. I'm Charlie Shield. See you there. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture, and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. Their arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand, and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas, and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. The less appealing the passport seems, the more dodgy stuff is probably going on. And yes, we're picking the juiciest stories, ones with a little mystery or drama along the way. We've got a lot to explore. Colonialism. Migration. Alternative medicine. Digital revolutions. Actual revolutions. And even some edible or rather drinkable stuff too. Woo! Tangy. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy. Hence why they like cannabis and crypto. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. 